This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 14th, 2020. I'm Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm talking with Stephen Morrissey, Executive Managing Editor, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. This week, I wanted to turn the format around a little and discuss how we evaluate COVID-19 reports. But I wanted to start with a slightly different question. Steve and Lindsay, where are you getting your information from about the outbreak, and how do you decide if it's reliable? And you get no points for mentioning the New England Journal of Medicine. So, Steve, maybe we'll start with you. What are you reading these days? Well, New England Journal of Medicine aside, of course, I look at NEJM.org. But beyond that, I think two things. Daily newspapers, which obviously have up-to-date information, but equally, obviously, given the nature of newspapers, it's sometimes hard to keep up and decide what their most important pieces are. For that, I look to some long-form magazine journalism. Um, Things like The New Yorker, The Atlantic have had in-depth, serious studies of what's happening with COVID-19 that are clearly designed for a lay audience, but they have good, reliable information. And I think it's the kind of thing that people should be looking at in addition to scholarly journals, medical journals. Lindsay, how about you? I mean, I think that, you know, one of the values of the journal is that those of us who contribute to pulling the content together sit in different communities. And I sit in a different community than Steve, and then you, Eric, as well, even though we're both infectious disease experts. And the sources that I've been tracking for quite some time, particularly before we realized COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 was a problem or even named the pathogen back last November, December, has to do with public health authorities, infectious disease, microbiology communication networks, different global internet-based chat rooms around pathogens and microbes, things that an ID doc like me find really cool, 99% of which don't turn into anything. But when something starts to be seen by a lot of members of my community in infectious diseases, public health, microbiology in different locations, usually without a known name, like a bug, sometimes it's a toxin, sometimes it's other reasons for illness in a cluster. I just think it's interesting to try and understand. And that back in November, December was a lot of chatter about this Wuhan thing emerging, which of the other things going on at the time turned out to unfortunately be a real problem that we're all experiencing. But I find in at least my communities, trusted sources of content of people who think infectious diseases and outbreaks are things to try and understand. I realize, Eric, that that's not a clean source like a particular journal or newspaper, but it's a community that I'm a part of that you know, really thinks it's important to identify and understand these problems. It's very noisy until things come into focus. And what's gone on lately with SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, has been as treatments emerge and disease phenotypes get described, it's again, my community of practitioners, the patients I've cared for, the collateral physicians and healthcare providers I've worked with who are seeing different problems in our patients, which then pulled together in a way to say, how is this bug behaving? How is the clinical disease manifesting? And then understanding from other experts. So it's been a very interesting challenge to bring information together that's cohesive, but that's the challenge of a novel outbreak like this. 
I don't know if that helps you, Eric, but it is a way that we get information that's disparate and try to make sense of it and then eventually translate that into what we publish because as we understand the problem, we want to help the community bring it forward for us all to understand. Well, you bring up an interesting question, which is the signal to noise. How do you see signal among a lot of noisy information? And that's a problem, I think, in a daily newspaper, as much as it is on the nerdy blogs that you read, Lindsay. Um, There's an avalanche of stuff out there. And how do you figure out what out there is important? In the case of those infectious disease microbiology blogs that you're discussing, Lindsay, there are new reports of something happening every single day, many of them, and most of them turn out to be nothing or never surface again. And it's the once in a lifetime thing that turns out to be SARS-CoV-2. And in newspapers, there are lots of reports of a treatment that worked, a new syndrome that come up almost every day, I'd say, and yet most of those don't pan out as well. This isn't a criticism of those media, but it is difficult to figure out what's real from what's not. And I really mean it's not a criticism. The goal of those daily media is to produce news, is to cover something that's breaking. And it's very different from our role, I think. And I think that, as Steve suggested, many outlets are doing that quite well. And yet, most of what we see isn't going to pan out. How do you start through that? I mean, I guess, Eric, I look at it a little bit differently in the sense that as technology has advanced, as society has changed, you know, 25 years ago, the internet was a concept that most were not aware of and nobody understood its full potential. Publishing itself in the last 20 years has gone from a physical paper to largely an electronic medium. Information flow is not, I received something in the mail two weeks after it was printed, to I get a push to me moments after it's published. So I think that how information flows has changed. That is terrific because it allows a much greater access to information. It is a equalizer because it allows almost anyone to share information so minority views can be shared, which I think is terrific. The problem which you get at is information overload and not all information is equal. And how does one figure out what's a fact or a pattern that's leading to a fact versus other interests or noise that may not turn out to be something of substance? The issue of the once in a generation pandemic, I guess my feeling is in the 20 years I've been at the journal, I've had a pandemic every two to three years from Zika to H1N1 to Ebola, more than once, H5N1, H7N9. Some have turned into global pandemics. Some have been regional, threatened global. But the idea of pathogens emerging and causing widespread illness is unfortunately more often than we appreciate. And a couple of false starts with flu didn't prepare us adequately for the current coronavirus outbreak. But I think the issue you raise is right now there are 20 outbreaks going on in the world other than coronavirus. Which of them should we care about or not? And at what point does that noise of something going on rise to a level of global concern? And that's a genuine challenge. And we have to balance the chicken little concern of everything is going to be a catastrophe to the ostrich with the head in the sand. Let's ignore it till it hits us in the face. 
And I think how to find that balance is a real challenge and requires both access to large amounts of information unfettered, unfiltered, to filtering to prioritize what's serious and doing that as early as possible so resources can be properly directed. So to bring it back to the journal, what about the manuscripts submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine? How do you evaluate those in the context of everything you've been talking about? I think that this is a very different circumstance from the one that Lindsay was just describing. Uh, We have a way of doing things. Steve, you've been here longer than either of us. And essentially, that process hasn't fundamentally changed. We evaluate manuscripts in-house when they come in. We send them out for external peer review. We bring them back. We discuss them extensively in-house. And then if we decide to proceed with something, we spend a long time working with authors to properly message the story in a way that we are comfortable with before we go ahead and publish it. And I don't think that's changed in the COVID-19 era. What's changed is the magnitude, is how much stuff we're getting and how quickly we have to respond to it. That has not meant that we've exactly cut corners. Every manuscript still goes for peer review. Every manuscript gets reviewed by a statistical editor. Every manuscript gets discussed and edited in a back and forth with the authors. It's just the time scale for that has been compressed enormously. That honestly is quite a stress on the system. We're not set up to do that. Uh, but we're still dedicated, I think, to producing the same quality of work that we do under normal circumstances. Erica, I mean, I think I agree with you that we have rapidly accelerated the process. I don't think we've diminished the quality. And the community of editors, manuscript editors, statisticians, our community to ensure quality have all stepped up with the energy needed to respond to this unprecedented event. There is always a trade-off with speed and being able to root out every error. So some errors can creep in, typically less substantive. And also certainty. And I think that early on in January, when we were publishing material, it was quite uncertain what was going on and it was quite uncertain what was important. And that's where the review process, which was done in days and in some cases in hours, was trying to be responsive to the public health need. And Steve, trying to gauge what is likely to be true, given that when The event is not yet defined. It's very challenging to know what will be true, but that is where I hope our process and vetting is able to approach that asymptote and approach that asymptote before everyone knows the answer. What about content? What are you looking for? Well, our content is certainly changing over time. At the beginning of the outbreak, we were very concerned with describing what was happening, describing patient characteristics, describing the spread, describing the epidemiology of disease. And as time has progressed, we've become much more focused on communicating unusual complications of COVID-19, things that are seen in smaller numbers, but are still important complications of disease, and moving on to clinical trials. What kind of interventions matter for people and where might it go? I'm speaking mostly about the research side. Um, There is a considerable amount of commentary and we have sought out or many authors have sought us out to express their views on what we should be doing. But I think we've moved on to a very operational viewpoint. What can we do right now that will make a difference? 
in addition to still understanding the pathophysiology of the disease. I mean, part of it, Steve, has been what do our readers need to know? What do they want to know? What will help them in understanding this disease and how to take care of our patients globally? And that in January was a different set of challenges than in May, because in January, the disease phenotype was not known. And so what we have been interested in and in publishing has evolved with how the community understanding of this problem has evolved. And early on, the level of evidence is thinner because it's initially establishing the problem for people to understand. And as Eric has noted, as the epidemic has unfortunately matured in different parts of the world, the ability to have higher quality evidence, such as randomized controlled trials to direct therapy, emerge. And of course, we're interested in the best evidence, but we're also very understanding that care providers have to make decisions today to take care of patients in front of them today. And in March, there was different information available than now in middle of May. And both Eric and I take care of patients and have been on the COVID wards. And we understand what it means when a patient is ill in front of you and there's no known treatment. What is the best evidence available today to help guide that decision making? And we've been very interested in wanting to help our clinicians, providers know how to take care of patients with the best evidence, and then the pathophysiology, disease pathogenesis, and our researchers to help investigate how to do it better so all of these things can mature as rapidly as possible to guide treatment. This may be a bit of a softball, but what would you like to see more of? That is a softball. I think that as we've said in previous podcasts, we're concerned, we have been concerned about the number of randomized controlled trials that are being done, particularly placebo-controlled randomized trials. And that remains a concern. We're starting to see those. And I think that those have had and are going to continue to have big impacts. Uh, there are not so many of them because there are only so many that one can do. They usually require a large number of patients. But they're going to provide us the answers on treatment. We would love to be able to see initial results for vaccination as well. So these interventional issues remain important. I think that it would also be important to see other kinds of interventions that can be made being tested in some way, not just describing what happens when, for example, the economy reopens in different countries and we can witness disease spread, but some sort of analysis that allows us to compare different strategies and what the outcomes have been. I mean, I couldn't agree more, Eric. What we want is we want the highest quality evidence to inform care and to improve public health. And as Eric said, it's not only the patient in front of me, what medicine do I give them, but it's how does society open so that we can get back to a healthier economy, which will improve health as well. But this has to be driven by high quality evidence appropriate for each domain and we have a high level of interest in the best evidence available to guide healthcare individually as well as community-wise. So it's still early in this outbreak, but do you already see lessons in terms of medical publishing, what we're doing as a journal, lessons that we've learned from this pandemic? I think we are seeing those lessons. I think that this has put a lot of pressure on us to understand what's important and perhaps what's less important about the characteristics of our process and 
how we can prioritize going forward and be efficient. Because one of the demands that's occurred during this is the provision, not just of accurate information, but very, very rapidly providing that. And that is something that is difficult for us to do at the scale that we are doing it. But I hope that we can adapt so that we can do more of that in the future and not just during outbreaks, but for other important studies that alter the way that we care for patients or the policies we put in place to care for populations. So I think there are things we can learn. This does give us a chance to experiment a little. We can do things like, say, this podcast. We've never done weekly podcasts before, and we can get a chance to see if they work. Hard to tell so far. I'd ask my parents, but unfortunately, they passed away a long time ago, and that probably cuts down on the number of listeners we have. Um, But um, this sort of thing and other experiments that we're doing at the journal, and I know that other journals are doing as well, are enabled by this freedom to act under these extraordinary circumstances. I mean, I think how we communicate is just continually changing. And the speed with which we communicate as a community and us as a journal and other medical journals and how to enable the community to know where high quality information comes from given the volume of information on the internet. And we have to balance quality with speed. And I think it's a false choice. I think they can and should be done together. And we have adapted to that and the community is adapting to that. I think another lesson is appreciating each other in that our authors, our reviewers, journal staff, both our journal and other medical journal staff, the amount of work and effort that people have stepped up to do to try and improve how we share information to improve the health of the public, to me has been both inspirational, but also needs appreciation. And hopefully we'll think a bit about how do we improve these structures going forward when we get on the other side of the hyperacute phase of this pandemic. Thank you, Lindsay. That's a really important point. I think we really want to make a shout out to the authors who've turned around manuscripts very, very quickly and done all the important work that we have the privilege of publishing to our reviewers who we've been making tremendous demands upon. Remember that the reviewers are experts in this field, and that means there are huge demands on their time. Most of them are taking care of patients and they're setting policies for their hospitals or for their states or for their countries. And we're asking them to do something on top of all their responsibilities. And then finally, as you mentioned, our staff have been extraordinary. They've really stepped up in a huge way, uh, working nights and weekends consistently for a really sustained period of time. So thank you, everybody. I mean, I also think from the medical publishing space, I think there's been a sense of community across medical publishing about how do we collectively respond to an unprecedented event like this. And I think it is healthy for communities like ours in that vein to relook at how we do business to serve the health of the public. And I think that has been another terrific element of reflection to improve how we all contribute. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.